My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Houston, uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. We have a main bus B undervolt. We've got a lot of thruster What's activity here, Houston. Now? It just went offline. Oh, there's another master alarm, Houston. I'm checking the quad. Christ, that was no repress valve. Maybe it's a quad We've C. got a computer restart. I'm going to reconfigure the RCS. We've got a big light. Fire doesn't make any sense. We've got multiple caution and warning, Houston. We've got a reset restart. All right, I'm going to SDS. Flight, their heart rates are skyrocketing. Econ, what's your data telling you? Uh, O2, tank 2, not reading at all. Tank 1 is at uh, 725 PSI and falling. Fuel cells 1 and 3 are... Uh... Oh, boy, what's going on here? Flight, let me get back to you. On April 13, 1970, the Apollo 13 spacecraft sustained speeds of 2,000 miles per hour as they reached nearly 200,000 miles from Earth. 55 hours and 11 minutes into their trip, they sent home a home video to Earth for people to watch. But no one was watching as no major network carried it on television. The American audience had become bored. Flying to the moon became rather mundane. But exactly that moment they stirred their oxygen tanks. And when they went to stir their oxygen tanks, because of a short in the wiring, the oxygen tanks exploded. 55 years later, our country, even the world, knows that quote. Houston, we have a problem. With that problem, the mission changed. If they were going to return home safely, they would have to make Several critical decisions, but they had two key problems. They had limited oxygen, 
and they had too much carbon dioxide. Now, if the mother of innovation is necessity, the father of innovation is creativity, and these two get put to test. Gene, we have a situation brewing with the carbon dioxide. We had a CO2 filter problem on the lunar module. Five filters on a limb. Which are meant for two guys for a day and a half. So I told the doctor. They're already up to eight on the gauges. Anything over 15 and you get impaired judgment, blackouts, the beginnings of brain asphyxia. What about the scrubbers on the command module? They take square cartridges. The ones on the limb are round. <laughs> Tell me this isn't a government operation. It just isn't a contingency we've remotely looked at. Those CO2 levels are going to be getting toxic. Well, I suggest you gentlemen invent a way to put a square peg in a round hole. Rapidly. Okay, people, listen up. People upstairs, Candidates, this one, and we gotta come through. We gotta find a way to make this fit into the hole for this. Using nothing but that. Let's get it organized. Okay, okay, let's build a filter. Deadly CO2 gas is literally poisoning the astronauts with every breath in and out. Heads up, heads up. Next, people will not comment. Heads up, people, look out now. What's this? That's what they gotta make. Well, I hope you got the procedures for me. Right here. That's it? The actual events are less film-worthy, but really no less amazing. The moment that they had the eruption on the Apollo, the NASA engineers realized that they needed to use the lunar module as a lifeboat to return the astronauts safely to Earth. And the moment they realized that, they knew that they would have a problem with the CO2 tanks. So they informed the engineers, and that morning, on the way driving to work, one of the engineers created that device in his imagination on the way to work. What an amazing creation. God created us as image bearers to create. God's design for us is that we would be innovative, creative creatures as his image bearers. And we've done a rather remarkable job over the years. In fact, I'd like you to think with me for a moment about the top innovations, the top 10 inventions in history. If you were to rank the top 10 inventions across history, what would be your top 10? Well, Carla Hayden did this back in 2017. Carla Hayden is the librarian of the Library of Congress. And she ranked history's 10 most important inventions. And here's her top 10 list. Number one, the printing press was created in 1450. The age of information was born. It changed education. With that device, we could print information for the masses and gave access to that information to really anybody. Number two, the light bulb was invented in 1835. Now we can see and read in the dark with the flip of a switch. It changed industry. Number three, the airplane, 1903 
We can fly like an eagle to the sea. Thank you, Steve Miller. (laughs) And then across the sea. It changed transportation. Number four, the personal computer in 1956. What I can't compute, it can compute. And the speed of processing information accelerated and it hasn't slowed down. Number five, vaccines. In 1928, we can kill some of the illnesses that used to cripple and kill us. Vaccines and penicillin changed health care. Number six, the automobile. 1884, we can drive across the country in days rather than in months. Sunday drives turned into weekend getaways. The automobile changed transportation. Number seven, the clock. Egypt recorded time 2,000 years before Christ walked on earth. But it wasn't until 1665 that the pendulum clock was created in Europe. And that clock changed our view of time from season to season and from day and night to minutes and nanoseconds. It didn't buy us any more time. We just cut it into smaller pieces, spend it differently, and record it precisely. Number eight, the telephone. 1876, Alexander Bell changed our communication by the creation of a telephone. And now we can call mom or work or a lover or we can call for help. Fifty years later, the first transatlantic phone was placed in 1926. Number nine, the refrigerator. Look at that. Isn't she a beauty? (laughs) I had to look at that picture for a long time to understand it. It's actually this part right here that's the refrigeration part. We can keep meat and milk fresh for more than a few hours. This changed the world for farmers and ranchers, restaurants, grocers, pubs, hospitals, just to name a few. My grandmother's parents did not get to enjoy coffee ice cream. That's sad. (laughs) Number 10, the camera. Chinese philosopher Mozi first wrote about a pinhole camera 400 B.C. That's fascinating to me. In 1826, French inventor Joseph Nipsey created photography as we know it today. And now, mom takes pictures of everything. (laughs) Eight out of ten of these are less than 200 years old. Three out of ten are less than 100 years old. What would life look like today without books and lights and cars and phones and computers and iced tea? Back in June 2017, when Carla Hayden made her top 10 list, that month, the iPhone turned 10 years old. 10 years prior, in June of 2007, Steve Jobs introduced to the world the iPhone. And in a 10-year period of time, 2 billion 
iPhones were sold. One out of three people in the world carried an iPhone. It changed the world. We changed. With that phone in your pocket, you have access to the internet. With that phone in your pocket, Google is going gangbusters. There's an app for anything you want. We have a camera for taking pictures and making videos whenever you want. That phone, well, let's just put it this way. You'll never have nothing to do when you're on the toilet again. <laughs> that phone changed the world. That phone changed you and me. But Carla Hayden didn't have it on her list. It turned 10, changed the world, but missed Hayden's list. There are other things that didn't make her list, but have been included by some historians. The magnifying glass was minimized and didn't make the list. Think about all that a scientist sees through a magnifying lens. She didn't include steel or metals. This one's fascinating to me. It's an ancient invention. In fact, the very first city ever recorded in history happens to be found in the book of Genesis, chapter 4, verse 17, where the author notes that the people of that city had metallurgical skills. We even date archaeology by the Bronze Age, the First Iron Age, the Second Iron Age. My cousin earned his PhD in metallurgical sciences and works for NASA so that we can have metals that fly into space. And razor blades didn't make the cut. What would you include on your top 10 list? What about the wheel? It's ancient, but it still makes the world go round. How about more recent ones like the radio or television? Black and white? And then color. What about the World Wide Web? It was created in 1990. What an impact it has. Here's mine. Here's what I would include on the list. Money. Money's an invention. And I think money's changed the world as much as any other invention that we've ever created. Maybe more than others. Now money makes the world go round. Money makes heads spins and hearts flutter. Money changes how we live. What would life look like if we didn't have money? Imagine if there was no money. We'd be reduced to a barter economy. A barter economy would require that every time you wanted to purchase something, you would have to find someone to trade with, someone who wanted what you had to offer and that they would accept that and trade with you, trade item for item. For example, a person who specialized in fixing cars but was hungry and wanted food would have to find a farmer who had a car that was broken and wanted to trade. You'd have to trade item for item. But what if the farmer uh, didn't have a car that needed fixed? Or, or what if the farmer could only pay you in corn and he, he had more corn than you could reasonably use? It'd just be a bad trade. Finding specific people to trade with makes it very difficult to specialize in your production. People might starve before they find the right person with whom to barter. 
So having to find specific people to trade with slows down productivity too. There needs to be people who are willing and able to purchase what you produce. But in a market, if you had your item, your, your uh, particular thing with money, you don't need that particular person. You can just take that item to a market and sell it, exchange it for money. In a mar- market, you don't barter. You exchange your goods for money. And then you can use that money to buy what you need from other people who sell in the market. This allows people to specialize. As workers become more specialized, it's easier to produce more, which leads to more demand for more transactions, which leads to the demand for more money, which means that the economy grows. Money funded the printing press, the light bulb, airplanes, personal computers, vaccines, automobiles, clocks, refrigerators, telephones, and cameras. Money creates more potential for more production. Money is the kind of innovation that paves the way for rapid advances in a culture, and money can be easily divided. You can offer a small amount for a bagel, a little bit more for a bagel ham and cheese, a medium amount for a car to drive by and pick up your sandwich, and a lot for a house. You can carry money in coins, bills, checks, gift cards. You can even send money over the internet. If a woman were standing on the street corner asking for some money, that woman simply wants a $5 bill for the moment. But if you're a student going to China to study for the summer, then you need to be able to transfer over the internet a large sum of money to a bank across the world in the form of an electronic transfer. Money comes in different forms. It comes in cash. It comes in electronic transferable funds. In fact, if you're in this room and you're nearing retirement age, you better have a large sum of money put in a non-transferable savings investment where it's earning better interest. You see, money is a great invention. You can spend it when you need to, And here's something you might try. You can save it. It won't mold. It won't rot. It's not going to spoil or go bad. Having money allows you to get more money. It's not hard for me to understand how people can begin to focus on gaining money. You need money to exchange for so many of life's goods, basic needs, like food, or clothing, or shelter, or transportation, or education, or health care, just to name a few. Sure, money can't purchase everything that's important, but it sure can purchase a lot of what we need. And let's be frank, I don't know about you, but I've had money and I've been broke. And life is a lot easier when you have money. Without money, you have some problems. It's just that with money, you find other troubles. Many of us begin to start living for money. I mean, it makes sense, right? You need money to live. 
And we begin to think that the best way to live is to work hard, earn some money, get a better education so that you can get a better job, so that you can earn some more money, so that you can take care of your family and teach your kids how to make a living, and then rinse and repeat. That makes sense. But now, money's changed us. Here's where money becomes an end instead of the means to an end. Many of us live for money instead of using money to live. Some live to earn money, while others earn money to live. And when you live to earn money, uh, you, you don't live a better life. You just live broke. Your soul sits empty. It happens in life. We take something that's good and turn it around. It happens in life when we take something that's good and get it turned upside down. And I think our passage today directly speaks to this. And our passage is found in Mark chapter 8. And Mark chapter 8, verse 36 and verse 37, Jesus here is speaking. And he says to us, What good is it if someone were to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What will someone give in exchange? That's the function of money. Money by itself is absolutely worthless. It's valueless. That dollar bill, that $5 bill, that $20 bill that's in your wallet, is absolutely valueless unless society agrees that it holds value. It's the only thing that gives it value. A paper dollar bill only holds value because society affirms its value. Just Google Venezuela right now and look at what's happening to their economy. Their currency is nearly valueless because of hyperinflation. It's lost almost all of its value. Money has value because society holds its value. We use it to exchange. Let me see if I can't explain this. You see, every time you give money away, you're saying that that is worth about that much money. When you buy that latte at Starbucks, you're saying that latte is worth about $5. When you purchase that iPhone from Apple, you're saying that iPhone is valuable, worth about $800. Something is worth just about what you're willing to pay for it. And that's the value of money. We use that money to exchange for the things that we value. That exchange becomes an expression of our life the values of our life. So let's walk back through this passage again because Jesus wants to see us about, help us see something basic about relationships. He says, what good is it if some were to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now Jesus is drawing wisdom from the Torah from the creation account. That's the premise for this. So Jesus draws back in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, where we're told that God created us as image bearers. He created us to live in relationship with him and to live in relationship with one another. 
And when he created us, he created us to create. He created us to innovate. He created us to work, to be productive, and to do so in relationship with one another and in relationship with him. And when we do that, we live in a relationship of exchanges. You see, you create and produce services or goods. I create services or goods, and we exchange those services or goods. That's what God created us to do. Money is a means of exchange. It's a symbol. And it says that that object is worth or that service is worth just about what you're willing to pay for it. So Jesus goes on. If you're able to gain the whole world, if you could work and work and work and able to gain the whole world, that's a figure of speech. Stay with me here. It's a figure of speech because you can't produce enough that you could gain enough that you could exchange to purchase the world. It just isn't possible. You couldn't gain and gain and gain and gain and gain and gain gain enough enough to control the world. God holds the world. He gave it to us to steward it, to create out of it, and to take care of it. And he wants us to produce goods and services for one another. We're to honor God and exchange a product or a service to support one another. It's called stewardship. And at the root of stewardship is this basic idea of using what God has given each of us to exchange our goods and services to support one another and to honor God. You're a faithful steward if you care for your resources that God has given you, using those resources to live in right relationship with one another and to honor him. When we take care of people, we take care of the environment around us, when we use what God has given us, that's called stewardship. That's what Jesus is drawing upon. It's easy to see how we can get this turned around. We get it turned around when we start to live for money instead of learning to use money to live. We get it turned around when we start to live for what money can give us or what we can gain from it instead of using those things to honor God. I know an acquaintance, and he's a great craftsman. He can fix all kinds of vehicles. He can build all kinds of things. When you walk into his garage, he has a large garage, and on every wall, all three walls, he has tools, and every tool has a place. And he knows when a tool is not in its place. I marveled his skill and, quite frankly, his organization. And when you walk into there, he's proud of his tools. And I'll tell you how he can use those. But be sure of one thing. Those are his tools. They belong to him. He uses him when he wants. I have another acquaintance who owns an extensive library. And when you walk into his house, he'll be quick to invite you into his study. And in his study are four walls. From floor to ceiling, those walls are lined with books. And he loves his books. They're his books for him to enjoy. I have another acquaintance who owns two beautiful homes. One overlooks the Columbia River, and one sits on a beautiful lake in Arizona. 
their homes that impress with style. Uh, There's no shortage of room for him and his wife, plenty of rooms for him and his wife. And when he takes you into his garage to show you his his, uh, speedboat and his Harley, the floor is polished. In his garage in Arizona, he's got an RV and a jet ski. My friend has plenty of toys for him to enjoy. We fill our homes with the stuff we value. Each home has different things of value. Bill McKibben is a noted social environmentalist, and he's made an observation. He writes as an author, he's observed that the number of close friends that people believe they have, that they could call on in a crisis, that number has been declining steadily since the 1950s. However, he's made another observation. He's also noticed that the amount of floor space in an individual's home has increased since the 1950s. And he says this gives us a picture of the choices that we've made as a culture. We've traded things for personal connections, toys for relationships. And the result is that we're one of the loneliest societies since before Egypt was keeping time. One day we wake up living to gain, as if more were the score. It's not a means to serve God and others. Your money expresses what you value and who you serve. I have a close friend of mine who bought a piece of property on the Oregon coast. And he personally built from the framing of it to the foundation of it to the wiring to the plumbing, everything in between. He personally built a beautiful two two and a half story home in Newport. He kept posting pictures for my wife to see. I'm like, Rob, you're killing me. Please. The thing about Rob is he lives in this home in the winter months. And then he rents out the home in the spring and the summer. And then he allows people to stay in his home for free or for a very low cost. And then Rob went over to France and bought a chateau. And he took that chateau and he remodeled it. And now in the spring and summer months, Rob uses that chateau to teach women and men biblical studies. Rob's not rich. You might think he is. He just leverages everything he holds to honor God and to serve people. But let's bring this closer to home. How many of you have ever been to the Gleason farm for a barbecue? Yeah, there's a family that uses their resources to honor God and to serve people. Speaking of home, my wife and I have just recently put our house on the market. This past Thursday, our house went on the market in Portland so that we could buy a home close to the Hillsboro. And we're homeless right now, quite literally, and we're looking for a place to stay. So we asked the staff to pray for us. And within just a very few short days, we received five offers from the Sunrise staff for a place for us to stay. There's a staff who live as faithful stewards over what they hold. 
Be careful with the dynamic here. Money can serve you as a faithful steward, or money can enslave your soul. Jesus asks us, what good is it if you were to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? He's going to ask the same thing in just a little different way here. He says, what would you give in exchange for your soul? I've been reading this from the NIV. We happen to like the New Living Translation here, so I'd like to read it to you from the New Living this morning. It sounds very similar. In verse 36, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Give me just a moment to show you the broader context to this. Some of you are savvy readers of Scripture, so let me give you the broader context. The broader context is this. Mark is showing the readers that Jesus is heading to the cross. This is the passage that introduces the theme of Jesus heading to the cross. And at the cross, Jesus is going to provide an exchange for us. The exchange that Jesus is going to give is he is going to give his life on the cross for the cost of the sin that you and I owe. He's going to exchange his life for the cost of sin. He pays the cost of our sin. And then Mark goes on to show in his book that when Jesus comes up out of the grave, he provides another exchange for us. Jesus defeats sin and death as he comes up out of the grave. He has victory over sin and death. And he is going to provide his victory as an exchange for our defeat of sin and death. And Jesus wants to tell his disciples about this. So he calls them together. And as his disciples are listening, Peter hears Jesus say this. And Peter says, no, Jesus, you're wrong. Peter has that compulsion to correct. Have you ever met people like that? Even when they're wrong, they still have to correct you? Well, that's what Peter does with Jesus. Peter believes that he knows and understands the values of the kingdom of God, and he's going to set Jesus straight. And Jesus' response, you can see it in chapter 8, just above this passage, Jesus' response is to confront Peter's poor theology. Peter thinks he knows, and Jesus immediately identifies Peter's view of reality as being influenced by the evil one. Peter has things turned upside down. He's got them turned around. And Jesus tells Peter that his ideas are directly from the evil one. And now Jesus wants us to see how to live in a relationship with him. And he says in verse 34, Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he's got all these people around him, and he calls them close in with his 12 disciples, and he says, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you'll save it. And what do you benefit? If you gain the whole world and lose your own soul, is anything worth more than your soul? 
Jesus calls us to follow him. He calls you and me to turn from living life on our own terms, living life our own way, living life for ourselves, and to follow him. And to take up your cross means you declare, Jesus, you're Lord of my life. I, I will let you reign over my life, lead my life, direct my steps. That means I bow my knee to your rule, your Lord of all of me. Now, you and I give our life in exchange for something. It's just a simple truth. You and I give our life in exchange for something. So you would be wise to stop and ask yourself, what am I giving my life in exchange for? Who or what am I serving? Jesus is saying to us today simply this. If you want to truly follow Jesus, if you really want to follow me, he says, let me lead. Stop trying to negotiate the terms. Become a non-negotiated follower of Jesus. If you try to gain goods and be good on your own, you're going to lose it all. But if you exchange your life for the life of Christ, you'll find your true life. And what would you do if you could get everything you want but lose the person you were created to be? What would you trade for your soul? As we prepare to come to communion today, as we prepare to come to the table today, simply ask God to help you see if your exchanges honor him and serve others. You see, money is a great invention. It's a means of exchange. It's a symbol. It just reveals your values. Money indicates who or what you're serving what you're living for. It frankly tells us a lot about your soul. You can look in your checkbook, or better, you can look on that app on your iPhone, and you can see all those bank transactions that you've had, all those exchanges that you've made, and you can see what's important to you. It'll tell you right there. So look at your exchanges. Look at what you've gained and ask yourself one simple question. How am I using my resources to honor God and to serve people? What do my exchanges indicate about my soul?